as you know, I'm, I'm not the most technical man in the world. Okay. Welcome to GTM Unfiltered, hosted by GTM veterans, Judge Borko, Craig Rosenberg, and Matt Amundsen. We make talking business fun and sometimes funny. That's because we're always unscripted, unfiltered, and unlike anything else out there. Get ready. Welcome, everybody. I uh, have what I guess every guest is special, but this might be one of my most like uh, special guests. I'm, I'm, uh, I believe it or not, I've known our guest since he was in his twenties. Uh, he was the CEO of a VoIP company in Atlanta called Ziva, which eventually became Vocalocity, which eventually got bought by Vonage. And I remember, I mean, he remembers, he was one of my first uh, uh, customers at Tippett and we did a ton of work together. We became great friends. Uh, And um, he was my 20 year old boy wonder. And I, as he could tell you, I kept, I kept calling him that as older. He's no longer, he keeps reminding me I'm not my twenties anymore, but it was amazing. He was the true definition of a founder back then, just muscling a company to market that became literally one of the leaders in VoIP. And it was, it was amazing. I tell everyone that he tells me to stop, but like I, it was, it was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen in terms of B2B and business happening. And he was at a very young age and it was incredible to watch. And uh, he moved on from there to do some work at uh, Cloud Sherpas and some other things. But then his big one, most recently, founder and CEO of Better Cloud, uh, which once again, which I'm sure he'll talk about as uh, as we have this conversation, was a completely different r- approach than he had to take with Ziva and Vocalocity, and was able to go in there, build this company, figure these things out, and eventually get bought by uh, Vista. And so uh, multiple outcomes for this young man. And what triggered me to finally get my man back was he wrote this incredible piece, 63 pages of advice for founders that I immediately started to read and I've downloaded and looked through everything because it's got incredible stuff. And that will be the basis of today's conversation with my good friend, David Politis. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It is so good to see you. And uh, the way that you know you describe our relationship in those early days, I, I learned pretty much everything I know about marketing and demand gen from you. Um, sales process, you wrote that first sales process for Vocalocity, that I don't know, 80 page document that was like the the Bible for us, you know, uh, for years. And and I tell everyone that it wouldn't have been possible um, without without all that time. We spent so much time together in, in those wow. years, and um, it was it's um, it was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. So I'm I'm happy to be to be talking about this stuff and all the lessons that I laid on top of the things that I learned from you in those <laughs> early days. Oh, dude, you've been it's been a long time. You've been doing a lot. To- by the way, I do think I tell everyone, you know, they're like, oh, Atlanta, you know, whatever. I'm like, oh, man, I used to hang out all the time down there. I remember I'd be like, now I realize I'm like, was the old man, lightweight old man getting dry, driven around town with you and Brian and all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Going to opera and all that. Exactly. Um, 
So look, this piece that you wrote, I printed it, but everyone will have it in the show notes. Um, it's it's incredible. By the way, it looks like an essay from college, you know. <laughs> um, but it's got incredible stuff, which isn't surprising. Um, but like, so we'll talk about it. But the first thing, speaking of the word surprise, what we like to do is sort of start the conversation with, you know, of the things that you're helping founders with what what is typically the most surprising to them like what's this thing that sort of is a prevailing uh best practice or piece of wisdom or perception that they have that this is how you should do things and actually there's a different way to think about it if you had to pick one or two of those that you uh, if you put into your piece what would those be and 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 what should we go do about it so i i'd say the first one um i I'd say there's probably two. And, and the first one for me is where people are surprised. They assume that this is something that they should be doing, which is going after big customers or when there is a big customer opportunity, just doing everything necessary to get that customer on board. And I've experienced, experienced this. I know you've experienced this. I, I know most people have experienced this. You're starting out, maybe you have 5 million of revenues, maybe zero, maybe 50 million, but you see this customer that can double your ARR. You see this customer that's like gonna be that huge logo. And so many times, actually catching that whale completely derails you, completely. Because that customer, you know, especially early, especially early stage, those customers, they have demands that will really become your entire roadmap. The entire organization has to revolve around that customer. Everyone has to do things to keep that customer happy. And it really doesn't allow you to build a scalable, repeatable, predictable type of business. And so I think that's probably number one. And, and, and that's a hard one for people to, to, to grasp because it's, there's money here. All I have to do is sign this agreement that agrees to these seven features being delivered by this day. And then I'm going to do this. And like, this is, and I'm going to visit them every week and I'm going to, and that is just that. So that's one um, that I've yeah. learned the hard way. Okay. Hold on. That is, that is a surprising, <laughs> not, no, no. I mean, I get it personally. I did perfect choice for that one, but like, what do you do? Like, how would you, for your, you know, founders you're advising, like, what would you call? So Comcast comes in, you're coming in out of the gate. There's a ton written into the contract that you got to go supply on all these. Things. Uh, do you, I mean, what do you advise the founder to do? I, so my, my advice, and again, what I, what I learned over time, and it, it actually turned out to work over time is what is the product that you want to continue to deliver? Like that's, that's what you want to look at. Like if you want to build this business long-term, and you want to build a product, what does that product need to look like? What are the capabilities of that product? What's the service you need to provide? For example, many of the customers will say, I need 24-7 support. I need this kind of SLA. If the answer is all the things Comcast is asking for are the things you want to build, great. Then that customer is funding that development. But if you're trying to go this direction and Comcast is trying to take you this direction, then my, my response to the customer, what I, and I, what I tell founders to do is say, here's the direction we're taking the business. We're happy to do one or two things, but this is the direction that we're going. Are you on board with that? Does that make sense to you? Is that interesting to you? And I think sometimes the customer will say, actually, yeah, we don't know any better. We were just thinking that way because that's, <laughs> that's what we thought. But, but the way you say is, is fine by us. Um, but I think it is important to understand the direction you're going 
And if you're going to take one of these big whales, one of these big customers on, that they're driving you in that direction, they're funding, maybe they're accelerating that, but it's not derailing you because it's real hard to come back and 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 get back on track. And I think that that's um, that would be my advice. And that may ultimately result in, in not getting that customer. But I've talked to some founders, successful founders, who have this one customer, and that one customer has hijacked the roadmap for two years. And every time the customer says jump, they have to say how high. And that that becomes a problem. If you're going to have a company that has hundreds or thousands of customers, that's going to be a challenge. Yeah, that is a surprising one. All right. That was number one. That was a good one. That was a good one. All right. Number two. So the number two. So the second one for me that I think is more, I'm not, I wouldn't say it's surprising when you hear it, but many companies I think, think that they're doing this, which is really focusing on a narrow and the correct ideal customer profile and ideal buyer persona. So what I see is, and, and again, from, from my experience, when we did uh, Warburg, Pink has made an investment in 2020. And when they came in, they said, look, you have thousands of customers. Who's the real perfect customer? I said, oh, any customers that are between this size and this size that use these SaaS applications. And they said, look, we got to go deeper. We have to go more, like, let's get all the way in. We segmented the customer base in 100 segments. So we're talking about segments of 20 to 30 customers per segment and looked at sales cycle, retention, ASP, close rate, all the things you would look at and found these, these areas of real gold, like real, real gold. And it had to do with the location, the language, the industry, all of that stuff. And when you start to narrow down that scope, the conversations become much easier. Those metrics start to pick up much, much faster. Um, and, and again, you have to layer in the buyer as well. But the point is a lot of the companies and what we were doing at Better Cloud, what I've seen a lot of companies do is that that profile is so big. And there's a lot of low quality leads and prospects and customers even in that profile. So narrowing that down, actually, sometimes you can cut the volume in half in terms of the leads you're going after your database and your sales force and double actually for better cloud, we doubled conversion rate, we shrunk sales cycle by 30%. We increased the ASP by 20%. But it was like, but the the, the database we were going after was something like 9000 before and 4000. <laughs> after and so we got much smaller but but the target was so recently i was working with a company and they they showed me who they were calling on i said is that that buyer persona do those people actually close we went into the database looked at all closed one ever and the buyer persona they were going after and they were telling their sales team to go after was like number seven or eight on the titles of people that were closing before so why don't we just get rid of them out of the database focus on the number one two three profiles like, and that's, so I think people think they're doing it, but you can get pretty narrow, much narrower with that scope. And it makes a big difference. I a million percent agree. And I think that that is a good one too, because that's the first thing I start with now is like left to right. Like a lot of, um, this is going to sound weird to a lot of people, but actually a lot of problems can be solved by defining your ICP. It can I tell everyone, like, I remember years ago, I'm not going to say who, but it was a company that needed to fix retention rates. You know how they fixed it? ICP. They figured out that all the low guys that didn't have a certain amount of things churned every time. It's like, 
you know, just by throwing those out, those metrics improve. The other thing, though, that I think, and I, there's a couple other points you make in here that I think tie back to this, which is messaging, you know, uh, you know, how you run your sales plays, how you do your demand gen, all of these things improve because you're locked in on a profile that you can actually understand, right? So like you may, I'm just going to throw out a couple other points here that I felt like I put in back, like, for example, you put like, and you said customer, but I do think these things tie back together. You said, really listen to your customers, understand their job and their day-to-day work. Uh, uh, work. Mm-hmm. You know, that is also true with your ICP. I mean, basically that sort of that idea of like- Exactly. Yeah, we'll go on that. I'm no, 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 I think, no, that, that it's, it's, you said, you know, the messaging this, even if you're building community, like it is hard to build community amongst different ICPs or different buyers because they're not going to interact with each other. They're not going to care for community in the same way. And I think it's the same as this, like you're trying to solve a specific problem. Who are you solving the problem for? Solving the problem for a hundred thousand person bank is very different than solving the problem for a 300 person startup. Like that's just, that is a different, it's a different problem to solve the jobs, right? When you think about the small companies, I think about better cloud, the director of it has full scope in a small, in a 500 person company, the director of it, the VP has full scope over the entire org. The director of it of a 60,000 person company, they have tiny scope in one area, maybe over devices or mail or doc, whatever it may be. And now it's a very different motion to sell to this company versus that company. So I think it's exactly what you're saying. And, and, and uh, you know, I'm sure, especially all the years and all the experience you have, even I remember even the Vocalocity days trying to get narrow. I remember having conversation back then of like, are we going after companies that have three employees or that have 15 employees? And the difference even <laughs> between three and 15 was like a massive difference. You know, I remember that conversation back then. Totally. I, you know, I got to tell you, there's a, another competitor of yours in the voice space. And I remember some my uh, buddy of mine took over uh, RevOps sales ops. And he said, look, here's the thing is because everyone has a phone in their office, right? Doesn't mean that we don't have an ICP here. We do. Right. And, uh, you know, he had done all this data to go figure it out. And that is actually the example I always give, which is, if you take your life in velocity, everyone has a phone. So that technically means, sure, your TAM for investors is like the world. Exactly. How you sell and retain and grow customers depends on you focusing in on their ICP. And that, and that, so I got a question though, along the line. So let's say, so we understand it. And, and, and just this idea, like we had a saying at, at Topo, which was uh, only good things happen when you talk to your customers. And everyone's like laughed. I said, really? So how many did you talk to this week? Um, and then I, I, I just had Anna Baird on like a month ago. And she's like, you got to get out there. You just got to, you can't lose that muscle. You got to be talking to customers. So uh, for you, you know, even, gosh, even 10 years in, you were still talking to customers. Yeah. yeah what does that uh, look like? So for me, from I agree with that. And I actually, the reality is that for for my whole career, I, talking to customers is the thing I enjoy the most. And during COVID, I 
the early days of COVID, 2020, 2021, the early part of 21, I got away from it because I was used to doing it in person. I was used to going to an event or having a conference or, or taking them to dinner or whatever, but I was used to doing it in person. And I, I went away from it also because everyone who was running companies in 2020, you know, we had a lot to, to deal with and we had, so I went away from it. And then at some point I was talking to the team and we were talking about roadmap and we were talking about messaging and all this stuff. And I said, you know, I feel disconnected. I told them I feel really disconnected from the customer. And so we got together, we had a lot of different discussions and we said, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get in front of a hundred customers in a hundred days. And I, I literally did 100 customer meetings, one hour each one-on-one with the, whoever our buyer was at that particular company, 100 customers in a hundred days. It was the best, it, it was the best, it was one of the best experiences of my career. The interesting things that came out of it is after meeting number 10, I was asking everyone, you tell me, what are your priorities? What are your priorities this year? What are your priorities this quarter? And it was amazing how, as I started talking to people, I'm like, wow, they they all have pretty much the, the same priorities. Okay, that makes it really easy to develop product because they're literally all saying the same thing. And then I'm starting to ask them, like, what do you want to see us do? And there's a bunch of common themes. You're like, okay. And you start to go through this process. And I learned so much in those conversations that on the other side, I went to the whole company and I presented a deck to the whole company of everything that I learned. And I felt really, um, I felt good doing it because I knew it was firsthand knowledge. It wasn't someone telling me that they had talked to the customer. I, I spoke to a hundred. So you, no one could tell me, no, you're wrong, Dave. Or the hundred and first customer who I told, or prospect, who I told, this is what we're building and why. If they said no, I'm like, no, no. I literally talked to a hundred of your peers. This is what the priority is, you know? That is amazing. hundred customers in a hundred days. I guarantee Sam cuts that one into LinkedIn. I'll tell you that much. Okay. All right. I, I, this one, so um, let's put it in like a grouping. These two both are different, but they, they made me feel like they were connected. So number 31 is build one thing, be great at it, then expand. Okay. Now you may not think this one is quite the same or people listening to the show might think that think Craig's crazy again, but here, here was one, here's what you had said also, which was figure out the channel that works for you in volume and cost and exploit it. Don't feel like you need to be multi-channel to start. It feels like there's this big sort of theme of, of focus. Um, and I'm sure you run into it where the founder goes to a conference, they meet this person. He's like, you got to do ABM and you got to go do this. Uh, and the other thing is like the feature creep and because you're getting all these signals and you feel like you got to go do this and making things now, it's like part of the DNA of a, you know, developer engineer. Uh, but you're saying, no guys, like let's build one thing and like, or let's go one go to market let's do this one thing and beat the crap out of it uh i felt like those two things together i don't know what do you think i think so i i think not only do they go together they go together with the ideal customer profile ideal buyer profile like all all of this stuff to me starts to come together and actually in a time like today that we're living in in the technology industry like it's it's a moment in time where i think focus is um is necessary and actually that focus 
let's just be honest, all of us, a lot of people raising a lot of money over the last however many years and able to be successful, even if you don't focus because you just have enough money to do a bunch of different things. But the reality today is, who's that customer? What does that customer want from you? Deliver that, be the best at that thing, and find that customer through the channel that's the most efficient and just milk that channel to, to the end. Because I think that, um, like you said, the founder mentality, you want to like go and conquer the world. And once you get into a category, you're like, we're going to do this and then we're going to solve this problem. And then, and so you're constantly doing that. And it's hard to act, to pull yourself back and say, look, there's a channel here that if we just build repeatability and predictability into this channel, right? Um, it could be, I talked to someone the other day, they said conferences for them, they crush it. And they said, but now we're hiring a bunch of SDRs to do outbound. I said, but how many conferences have you not attended that have your customers there? And they said, oh, there's like 40 a year. We go to four. I said, but everyone you go to, you crush it. Yes. <laughs> okay. I would go to all 40 until you basically can't anymore because outbound is not like that's not definitely not a, a silver bullet. Like, why don't you just do the thing that you know works? Your customers and they know their profile, they know the persona. But to them, like, we got to go more. We got to do more. We got to do more faster. We got to create the next channel before the first channel dries out. I'm like, if you're at four and there's 40 conferences, you got a long way before before it gets there. Yeah, totally. I remember this. You'll enjoy this for Tippet. Remember, like Scott and I were. B2B enterprise sales folks, and we hired these guys from Consumer Internet. And so this is, we were learning, conversion rate was a new word back then, right? And they were like, so they came back and they said, look, we've done these tests. And here's the thing. When we put the, this was crazy. When we put the TNCs in size eight font in this light blue, it converts better. And we're like, that's interesting. Let's talk about that. And I remember the, the consumer internet guys, guys, who cares? Like, why, why do you care? All you guys need to know is I found an unlock and I'm going to beat the crap out of it. until. It, and, and I remember like Scott was like, well, you know, maybe like start to test other. He's like, dude, give me all the budget, all of it, because I will beat the crap out. He beat the crap out of this thing for like two and a half years. Right. And like until it stopped working and, um, it, you know, obviously at a certain point you do some tests, but to your point, like he found this thing and we just had that. We were so like, well, there's nuance and all these things. He's like there's no nuance. This works. We know it works. Like, why would we spread here? We're, we're not done. We have this huge runway. We're going to go beat the crap out of it. I love what you just said. I think one thing to add to that, just because you say, that, you know, and, and because we had this experience together um, in those days, the Vocalocity stuff, you know, we found those lead sources that worked and there was all those various lead sources and websites and everything and, and buyer site. We, we figured it out. But for whatever reason, these bad lead sources would come online. We knew they were terrible. We knew they didn't convert, but it was, we're going to give leads. We've got to grow faster. We've got to do all this stuff. Actually, in the grand scheme of things, we could have gotten rid of like half the lead sources and only reduce new sales by 5% or 10%, but be 30% more efficient, you know? And, and those things, like when you're early on, especially when you have investors, you know, I mean, investors want to see, show me the pipeline, show me the leads, show me the volume, show me all that. So all the stuff we're talking about here, 
there, if you have a lot of investors or any investors, there has to be alignment when you're doing these things because it may come with slower growth. Maybe, you know, it may come with more efficient, slower growth, but much better than burning half your money in, in a year. Yeah, I mean, the uh, efficiency is the theme. But in the case that you just brought up, if they're doing four conferences and there's 40, <laughs> yeah. their runway, they should go take a loan out on their house and go put it that. I mean, that's yeah, yeah, you're right. No, you're right. Velocity. You took every penny, you know, like, uh, you know, someone was telling me like Benioff, the lights almost went off twice at Salesforce because he put every money into marketing and selling because they knew like they figured out where they were going to go make the thing and beat the crap out of it. Okay, cool. That was awesome. And I love the focus thing. I think that's a big thing. Okay. The, the other theme that I got from this, which in a previous show we had with a guy named Ted Purcell, we asked him, like, what's the most important thing for hiring right now? And by the way, he's much farther along in, as a star. He's in a, you know, in the hundreds of millions. And he's like, grit. Grit is everything. And you also said that, especially for startups. And so tell us about that and like, how do you find, cause you had grit. That was the thing about you. And some of those guys you had, I, I, you know, I didn't have as much better cloud experience, but certainly I was with you in Atlanta while you were building something out of nothing. And that was a, like a house of grit. Like that was Baltimore Ravens, Ray Lewis, Baltimore Ravens locker room at Reed. Like it, it, and so, but now I love this. And by the way, it's number eight on your, I know you didn't prioritize it, but still it just hits you in the face right out of the And here's what he said, folks, and then I'll let him comment. Grit is the most important attribute for your first hires. Go. So, you know, for me, um, I think as you go through these ups and downs in this market that we're in, and, and there are periods of time where people may feel like um, grit is a is a nice to have. But in reality, early stage, again, hundreds of millions, uh, I, if you can keep that grit all the way to hundreds of millions, that's amazing. But in the early stage, there are just so many challenges that you face. Going from zero to one, like zero to one is a really difficult stage. Getting that first set of customers, Getting people to buy into a product that basically doesn't exist or is very early, um, going through whatever financial challenges, going through not being able to get paid the market rate, going through not knowing if you know the equity is going to be worth anything, going through working six jobs, basic wearing six hats versus one hat. Those things just they take a level of grit um, that. I don't, I don't know that everyone has. And, and I have actually been reflecting on this a lot myself as I think about the next company, which is how, you know, um, I see a number of founders who are in their second or third company. And what they do is they go out and hire a bunch of senior executives who were with them at the last company at the end of the journey. And they bring them in at the beginning of the journey. And to me, I feel like the risk of doing that is you don't have the people ready to do what is necessary to really like there's no inertia in the beginning. You got to like create that inertia and that just takes a different level of, of grit. I feel like to your point, both Vocalocity, Cloud Sherpas and Better Cloud, all of them, the people that we that were there in the beginning, they just were willing to get through anything. They were resilient, right? That's an, it's a thing also about resilience of people being like, uh, I, I can't, you know, I, I need to take some time because I'm, I'm, I'm burnt out. Like that's, that's not a that's fair but it's you can't really do that when you're in the early stages like you just you don't have the luxury 
right? Every day matters in a big way. Every conversation matters and like that. So to me, it's, um, you're like running almost at the red constantly, you know, and that, that takes a, a, um, a level of, of grit. So, um, that I, I believe that wholeheartedly. And I, I think that's come true multiple times over and over and over again. Yeah, I totally agree. By the way, on the, the conversation I had with Ted, uh, you know, when the, the grit factor today, actually for no matter what size a revenue or company you have, when the, when the market changes like that and the patterns that got you to where you are break, grit is the only way to refigure out what to do again. That's your point though. I like, like that. It's patterned. Then you'd be people in the seat that can follow the pattern. When the pattern breaks, we're back to figuring stuff out again. And that takes grit and resilience and the, the buyers, they changed, right? Like they did, they're, they're, there's mass, they're not buying like they did. It's, they are buying, but you, it takes grit to figure out how you're gonna sell to them. It takes grit to set, set through the fact that, wait, this is our 13th meeting to get an $80,000 deal, it just is. And so that's where sort of uh, grit comes into play. By the way, grit's been mentioned so much on my show. I try to get Angela Duckworth on my show. She's a PR <laughs> by the way. So I just, I'm going to keep my grit and make it happen. Uh, last thing I want to bring up, I think was really cool. Um, and I, I am going to equate this to salespeople because you do have other things on this, uh, about your sort of force multipliers. Here, here's what you said, though, on number 16. And I think it's a really important point. Your top performers are force multipliers to so spend one-on-one -on -one time with them and find out what makes them tick, okay? And then I'll just add a couple bullets from also in here, which is celebrate big wins, right? You know, bring up the fact that when people are doing remarkable things, I think those things tie together. Uh, but, but I'd love for you to comment on that. I think that's really the human aspect as we're building tech companies, I think is often lost. And Definitely. So, and that makes a, I thought that was a really good point. Yeah, so I, I think when you when you look back at all the companies you've been a part of, when I look at the companies I've been a part of, invested, advised, there's always those people. I, I can name many of them over the years. There's always those people that are the force multipliers. There's those people who make everyone around them better, who everyone else looks up to, who really move the needle for the business. I, I feel like that is a common theme. Again, like the grit theme, there's always those force multipliers. In sales, the way I see it manifest itself, you have that person, that rep, who think, who's just constantly trying stuff and has the grit and is testing and is doing this and learns the product and the industry really well and then creates this relationship and then does this and then they start crushing it. And they are hitting 200% of quota. And the, when they become the force multipliers, when they do that and the other people around them the BDRs that work with them, the AE that just got crushed on the leaderboard by them, the other, they start to watch that. And they're like, wow, I, that's possible. And I think when they see that kind of stuff and they say that's possible, it starts to create like a, a different type of reaction. And, and in order, but the thing is in companies, especially as you get bigger, it's hard to know where those force multipliers are because as the company gets bigger, you got to find them pull them out. We would actually have the force multipliers come to 
ELT meetings and present if they had some kind of big win, they did something, they game changing, we'd bring them to ELT meetings, we'd have them present at all hands, we'd have like them, you know, almost informal mentor the people who are getting trained up, we'd, we'd highlight them in new hire training. And to me, those force multipliers, I can always point back and know that that one person was was basically doing the job of multiple and not just that, they're elevating everyone else's game around them because people are looking going, wow, did that person just do that? I thought that was impossible. Or did, how did they come up with that? Or, you know, things that like that. So I, I, I do believe that those force multipliers. And then the key is how do you keep them motivated? Because those people are the ones that of course has have any opportunities they want. They can go wherever. And how do you keep them motivated? And what I learned as I did the meetings with them is I always found that compensation Yes, for salespeople, more likely compensation is top of their list and it should be. But but in reality, most people who are the real top performers, the real force multipliers, they just want to have impact. They just want to be the force multiplier. They want to know that they're they want to get the credit for it. They want to be held up and say, hey, celebrate it. I found that for a lot of people, money, even the best salespeople, money is not always, you know, at some point you reach a level of comp where you're like, okay, this is great. I want to be I want to be the one who closed the biggest deal. The money is great, but I want to be known as the one who closed the biggest deal. This I want to be known as the one who set this record. I want to be known as the person that I mentored the BDRs who became the next generation. And so how do you give people the opportunities to do that, the opportunities to grow? Um, and then those force multipliers come with even more energy. You're a force multiplier, David. <laughs> I gotta tell you. All right, man. Well, that that was uh, that was amazing, and I'm trying to. I think it's a combination of things. One is I've always loved hanging out with you and talking game, and then also you've done a lot of thinking and put your thoughts together in this. And um, I know I keep going back to this piece of work that you made, but it is the it is a must read. And like I said, we'll have it in the show notes. By the way, I just love saying it's in the show notes. It's like a big thing for me, but also. Um, you know, uh, for the if you have the opportunity to meet David and just have conversations with him about his travels here, I think it's I think it's amazing, as you could tell from this 30 minutes with you, man. So I appreciate you coming on. And that was like top notch, 10 plus value. I, I appreciate Thank it. you. Thank you. And, and, and when you share out the notes, um, if people want to reach out on LinkedIn is probably the easiest. And, and I get I try my best to to get back to everyone and and talk if people are interested. I'm I'm spending a lot of time with with uh, early stage companies, and I'm I'm enjoying the process of of taking all these lessons and actually making use of them, you know, for for other people. So thank you for having me. It's amazing. I just need to see you in person next time. Yeah, man. This month. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you. Hey guys, always happy to see you. Glad to be here as always. We got a pretty interesting uh, topic, group of topics to talk about today. As always, you guys know the crew, Craig, Matt, Judd. We're gonna have some fun. Uh, we found an interesting post from John Miller, if you don't know him. Uh, run many companies successfully and mar done marketing, sold some, bought some. We will put his post in the show notes so you can find it there. But he had some, a very interesting take on the playbooks and the new way that we need to uh, do growth. 
And some of the call-outs are pretty interesting. So I thought it'd be great. Maybe we'll go into, he has a top three and then a deep dive into them. And we can kind of go that way. Um, I, I'm going to start a little out of order if you guys are okay with that. Cause I had one that sure. jumped out to me. His number two is the importance of brand building in contrast to the old playbooks focus on short-term, highly measurable tactics. A new approach emphasizes investing in brand as a foundation for enhancing demand generation, even if it's less quantifiable in the immediate term. And he literally called out that one piece of advice for how to evolve here is invest 40% into brand. So I'd love to get, maybe we start with Matt, considering you're a CMO, man. I'd love your take on this. <laughs> Well, <clears throat> I'll, I'll caveat my answer with uh, I've, I've made a lot of smart decisions over the course of my career by taking John's, uh, in certain cases, direct orders, and in other cases, just advice. Um, uh, as many people know, John ran marketing when I worked for, for Marketo, um, and I consider him to be a friend He's and a mentor. Uh, so, so maybe, maybe my take isn't, isn't the best when it comes to, to his content, just because I typically just agree with it. I think the challenge would be to get board level approval or CEO level approval for 40% focus on brand. But I think that like tactically speaking, there's pretty good ways to hide that. And I think it, it comes down to what you define to be brand building, um, because I think at the highest level, if you think about brand, you think about like slogans, you think about um, you think about commercials or billboards and things like that. And certainly not everybody's going to have uh, the, the the budget for something like that. And that might make up like if you wanted to do a billboard campaign, that may make up 100 percent of your of your marketing budget. So so that might not be a good fit. But when I think about brand, it's I think about campaigns that you can run that will get your brand in front of people. So they'll start to recognize who you are and what you do, what the primary benefits of your product are, but don't, it does. These are, these are campaigns that don't rely on somebody coming back and saying, yes, I want to see a demo of your product. And I'll give you like a very real world, uh, uh, example of that, which is as a part of the account-based marketing program that we run at census, um, there are aspects where we will just give people stuff. And I don't mean content, but I mean, you know, we might just send an entire data team a $25 gift card to uh, Uber Eats or DoorDash or something like that. And that is just essentially just to associate uh, our brand with, you know, something good like, hey, oh, here comes a census email. I'm going to open it because there might be a gift card in there. Uh, so I like those guys. Uh, and, and we're not asking them to do a demo to redeem that gift card. We're not asking them to take a phone call or do like a, you know, some sort of uh, audit on their data structure or anything like that. We're just giving it to them. Um, and so I would, I would see that as brand building. And I think if you explained that part of your brand building was to help just gain affinity with the, you know, the buying group uh, amongst your ICP, I think that you would get board level approval and certainly CEO level approval for something like that. I love that, man. I, I, I don't think many people think of sending a gift card with no ask as brand building, but it's so powerful in the way that it connects the two. Craig, what about you, man? You see this all the time, probably hear about it from so many different companies. What are you, what, what's your take? Well, first of all, I'm, I mean, I sorry about my reaction to not receiving a $25 Uber eats card as well, but I am, <laughs> Um, 
No, I, I look, I think, well, there, like one is, um, uh, I don't know that we spend the whole time on this, but we should, there are, there, there are definitional issues on brand. Mm-hmm. Right. And I do think talking about it now will be more effective than it was 20 years ago. Cause I felt like, like just for example, Matt brought up a billboard, right. But like that was, so if you actually, you could take John's evolution, right? So John came in after years of marketing being like, Hey, look at this really cool ad campaign I did. And people going, you know, okay, but what? Right. And then John came in and said, no, man, like we can track this actionable stuff leads. We're going to digitally bring leads into the organization and you can track it. Right. And, um, and then of course, John said, well, actually like for some of these really, uh, targeted instances, you have to do account based. Then he did account. Now he's like coming in with this new fresh point of view. And the cool thing is the, the fact that we do now have like a quantifiable outlook actually will allow us to think about brand in the right way Mm -hmm. where I think the way people thought about it before was, well, you do this billboard and, uh, that's branding. And actually that's not what we're talking about here. And so I do think that's important. And I think the activities that we do, uh, you know, have to add up to a, a larger sort of brand presence that you're trying to build, right? And all the things matter. What the reason he's bringing it up is because when we look at the evolution I just talked about, John built an army of people tracking MQLs. It's all, I mean, I tell him all the time, bro, that's on you. Like you did that. And it was right. It was right for 10 years. It literally was. It was like, it was a major breakthrough and you were right. But now we're sort of reconditioning ourselves for, we recondition ourselves for ABM. Now we're reconditioning ourselves all around for more holistic marketing, right? And like, uh, um, and so, you know, that's part of this sort of new adjustment. But I think because of all of these evolutions, we're better suited for this. But the key here is like a strategic look at like how you want to be viewed by the market and how you want to be that is actually the thing that we don't think about like if you think back i don't know when the mql thing first started it's like if someone came to me i'd say you know what you're going to do all this branding stuff forget it just start doing webinars you get leads and you go and you go sell some shit and that is that's what he's breaking right which is like first thing everything went into demand and if as long as you got leads and meetings you'd be fine and like, that's just not, it's not the winner right now. Like you have to be positioned in the market and there's so many things that go with it. I worked at Gartner, you know, people make fun of it all the time, guys, like you have to work the analysts and you have to have a brand mission statement and positioning going in. Otherwise I'm telling you, man, the analysts see so much me too, that um, they're looking for stories and they're looking for narratives. We had Andy Raskin on and you could work backwards from the narrative too. Like I'm, whatever that is, you have to think about this story for the market that you want to go tell. And you got to tell, you know, everywhere. It's like analysts, PR, you know, uh, hitting them over the head. Like if they're driving down the 101, then great. You do snowflake billboards, but those things have to tie back to this big story because, there's a ton of reasons that have changed, right? But the anonymousness of the buyer journey is really key. The competitiveness of the tech market is huge, right? Because you don't just compete with your 
your really specific isolated category. You compete with the entire category and then you compete with all of software. So yeah. like you, you have to be in constant sort of differentiation mode. And then the last thing everyone knows, you got to be in the top two. And oftentimes that's like, I could tell you right now, 10 years ago, the way you got in the top two is you took all the money you had and you went and sold as much as you could. Yeah. Right. And now that's harder. And so now you can't do that. So just going back to what we we're talking about, it's like someone came to me before. It's like, start running webinars, get your content out there. We'll bring people in, get salespeople on the phone. And every dime you got, let's go sell. And yeah. now what we're saying is, whoa, like you got to position yourself, you know, so that you're in the mind of the buyer and the right thinking about it in the right way. So I believe it. Uh, the, and then the 40% number, one of the things that I think is an issue that um, we can have John on and I'll talk to him about it. Like what he did well, and I, I you know, in the both of his revolution starting activities in the MQL era and in the ABM era was lead with data. You, that's the key here is to, if you, you can't go to a CEO and an executive team and be like, I'm gonna spend 40% on brand. Right. You can go to them and say, look, guys, here's what we looked. I looked at the 100 most successful software companies over the last 10 years. And here's what we know about them and how they position themselves into the market. We have to be one of those people or you take it from the last five years. I don't care. But like we have to make the case better there. Yeah. And then uh, and then that that will help with that, because otherwise, yeah, I mean, you're going to go in sales leaders gonna be like, bro, where's my leads? Right. Right. And, uh, and that, that's something that, um, that is part of like building that narrative on brand. It can't be, uh, just, Hey, we need to do brand. It has to be the winners look at brand and here's how this is, uh, you have to trigger them, you know? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, I, I went on a long thing. I think it's really important. Judge brought it up multiple times over the last, I think, month of shows maybe month and a half and yeah. so it's good to see and it's i think it's really important but like there's a there's a lot of unpacking we got to do there I, I i love what you said and i think the definition actually is a key here um and i kind of extrapolate out when you talk about 40 percent in brand a lot of the things that are brand that we would consider brand many people don't realize affect brand so to some extent i think the, the that the money is actually probably already there and some of it's probably already invested in brand but because of the definition component they don't consider it brand um so i think there's some of that going on um and to some extent i think this is kind of that call out like the re-education time um i think that this piece is cyclical unfortunately because i think brand is extraordinarily important it's a differentiator it really 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 it can be powerful but I think this, like most of John's movements, it will get to a point where everybody's doing it and it'll be the next evolution. So um, that being said, I would love, you know, we, you say brand and most people don't even think messaging, right? I mean, like the most obvious component, which drives all of your demand and all of your campaigns and all of those components. And how much do we think about it from a brand perspective? Not a lot. So I, it definitely could be a huge, huge piece. I, I think the next piece- Before you move on, can you please tie everything back to UPS? Is that cool? <laughs> they, their brand issues. Now nah, it, it is more of a consumer, but you just, Matt did call me and say, Hey, UPS just laid off 11,000 people or something. 
And, uh, and it's because guys, they didn't, the, the branding issues. Matt, your yeah. comment on that? Well, yeah, this week in UPS Corner, uh, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> Love it. Bra- Brown had a, a rough week and had to let go of some people. Um, it's probably probably good signal that things were definitely going wrong when they were like, eh, CMO, shmemo, we don't need that. Um, I don't think that there's a lot of companies out there going, you know what we don't need in order to be like a really successful multi-billion dollar organization? We don't need a CMO. So uh, th- we probably uh, should have seen that as just like a signal of, of uh, how difficult things were at UPS. And um, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure we'll have more great insights into what's happening in the world of logistics around UPS next week. So stay tuned. <laughs> um so maybe a good one to go to, um, he points out around growth goals and priorities, and this fits back to his redefinition of marketing metrics. His take was, we need to shift from isolated marketing metrics like MQLs and marketing source pipeline, funny considering what you just said, Craig, to a more holistic team-based approach. This involves moving away from solely attributing success to individual marketing tactics and instead focusing on an overall team performance and how collaborative efforts contribute to the company's growth and revenue. And he goes into the growth goals and priorities, where he says acquisition focus is old, and now the new way to go is an end-to-end acquisition, being pipeline creation plus acceleration, retention, and expansion. Uh, His key advice, set team-based goals for each stage of the funnel, new pipe creation, expansion pipe, win rate, retention. Thoughts? This one's interesting. I'm going to say this one seems the least interesting to me. Uh, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I know. I'm just, yeah, go ahead. This, this feels a lot like the double bow tie um, that, that, that was uh, made famous by, by, by Craig and, and his team, right? Like this is uh, thinking about, you know, real, real life cycle marketing here, like from inception all the way through retention and renewal and upsell and all that. So this, um, you know this 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 one doesn't seem all that interest all that unique to me or like maybe not as like time uh, time bound uh, as some of the other stuff on this list but it's a good reminder I mean I think there are a lot of marketers who are less concerned about what happens uh, to to leads or opportunities once they they fall into the hands of the sales team and I think it was you know four or five episodes ago where I was you know, making uh, recommendations to to marketers to look further down the funnel than what they typically do, um, or spend more time thinking about how leads are progressing through a sales cycle uh, than potentially they had been in in, in a while. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's like if if you're a marketer and you're not thinking about the full funnel, if you're not thinking about like what am I doing with our customers, how am I getting them to renew, how am I getting them into new products for upsell or cross sell. Um, then this is a good reminder to please start thinking that way. Yeah, but that, you're just coming from a marketing. I mean, like his point was that it would be a a team goal. What do you think of that? Well, I think inevitably it, it it is a team goal by structure, right? Because you have salespeople, you have CS people, you have success people. Like, so they're all there. I guess. Uh, I guess what he's saying is is start being maybe a little bit more spl- explicit about the metrics around it. I'm I'm, I'm not totally certain. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I I do I, I do agree that like we've this is a conversation that I think we've been having 
right? Yeah. I do like, but like, for example, um, uh, I think marketers would be, let's just take customer marketing. I think they've been, like, if we went to your customer marketer and said, great, like churn rate is on you, retention is on you, expansion numbers on you. That isn't that like make doesn't that make Matt um, John's uh, proposal radical? Because like, would they say yes? I'm in. Like, I can't wait to take. It's an interesting point. My my one take and why I found this interesting is we've kind of been talking about this type of stuff, but I don't think we're talking to marketers anymore. I think we're talking to the executives because to to what at least what I'm still seeing in the marketing or in the world out there, the market and all. Um, Marketing is still thought of kind of like a demand group, right? Not an end to end group. While many times, you know, the marketing leadership understands what's necessary, it's hard to internally sell to get headcount, to get functionality. And so we wind up thin in that marketing area. And I think what this kind of tells me, at least, is we need to think about it from an end to end perspective in all of the organizational groups. So if we're giving those metrics and allocating like the goals to the team, we have to be open to how that team is going to achieve them. And if the goal is that end-to-end growth perspective, there's a different way to look at it. That that was kind of what I've just found interesting because I, I agree with Matt. A marketer should know this, but I don't think most other people outside of marketing think about it in this, from this perspective. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think he he took some things from, like, for example, in the, in the table, he's got sales and marketing, who does what and how do they orchestrate <clears throat> Align, right? He's <laughs> been big on, and uh, you know that that's one that he's sort of brought together. You know, uh, you know from sort of it's not new, but it's sort of still part of his overall story. I, I think actually one of the, um, I mean, in terms of buyer behavior, you know, like I think you know it's interesting that uh, Matt, you've been sort of harping on uh, in the in past not in today but like in a good way but harping i mean in a good way which is you know i do think part of the new playbook is uh addressing the anonymous buying yes right or you know some people call the dark funnel right and um and so that i think it does tie back to brand, but also it ties back to, you know, changing the way you do. I really like this one, which was like engagement channels, right? And it's like, you know, content driven, email nurture, outbound prospecting. Those things are still happening today, but we've had a number of conversations about this. They talk about the new pl- playbook is like, you know, uh, you know, how do we address this anonymous buying dark funnel, the predisposition towards community? Right. Um, and so, you know, for me, I think that's really interesting. And the things that you've sort of been uh, talking about around that, I think, would be is helpful to talk about today. Right. So, I mean, like what if you were going to tell tell the world, like, what are the things you need to do today that you weren't doing before to address the not anonymity of today's buyer? What would you tell them are the things that they should do? Try to make the journey as self-service as possible and put fewer places where the buyer is anticipating, if I do this, I'm going to get a phone call from an SDR. Or if I, if I want to see something, I have to engage with a person. 
Um, I think that there's like a ton of really great software right now that's being built that just gives people the uh, capacity to do like self-led journeys, even through like a demo. And I think, I think if you, if you fast forwarded the clock, you know, four or five years from now and said, Hey, what is the new kind of conversion to opportunity to close one look like? Or what are the, what are the things that, that, um, that helps streamline that. So if you're like, hey, we get a demo request and only 50% of them become opportunities, it would be, you know, and, and how do we take that to like 70, 80, 90%? It would be more people having the opportunity to go experience the product in some form or fashion on their own, whether that's through a self-driven demo, whether that's through a free version of your product, some kind of trial, uh, et cetera. Then I think, you're going to see a lot more conversion because more and more people want to do this on their own. Now, obviously, there's people who sell software that like it requires levels of integration. It requires massive amounts of data. So maybe there's not a solution out there for you just yet, but they are coming for sure. Um, and so the more people feel like they're in charge of their own destiny, the less stuff that they're gate that they have to get through gates uh, in order to see, and the less human interaction that they need to have. Uh, I think will 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 help with the uh, conversion metrics because once they see it and they're like, okay, yes, this is great. Now I raise my hand. I bet you a hundred out of a hundred of those, or ninety out of a hundred of those, I should be more realistic, uh, would be converting into real opportunities because people can see the value on their own terms. So if I were to to make a recommendation on like what is the right way to go forward, it is think about everything that you do. And how much of it do you want to put behind a form? How much of it do you want to put behind human intervention? And how much of it, how much value can you express to people? And this, we're not talking about brand here, but we're talking about showing the actual product and people being able to see the benefit without having to interact with uh, a person or a form or something like that. Just give them the opportunity to see the value. And, and that is challenging. That is super, super, super challenging. It, it, it will not be an easy journey. But to me, it is this, you know, I've been having conversations with people about this for the last four or five years. It's the B2Cification of B2B. There will always be salespeople involved when the deals are of a certain size, but people still want to have that B2C-like experience. And the more you can streamline towards that and more you can build a journey that enables that, the better off you're going to be. Okay, hold on. I'm going to ask Jed for his reaction as the defender of humans. <laughs> I, I mean, everything that he said. Uh, wait, 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 I have a very specific question. Go. I, I, we got to. So, number one is self guided product use. So, how do you feel about a potential buyer coming in and working the product, whether it's through a test box or a free trial, uh, without talking to a person? How do you feel about that? I'm fine with it. Uh, I think we do it a lot in the B2C space already. Uh, you know, you free demos, uh, freemium versions, things like that to be able to actually get value. Uh, that doesn't bother me in the least. How we get there and like more enterprise solutions is challenging. Uh, I also think that some of it is by industry and potentially vertical in that some people need a little bit of hands-on uh, if you're going extremely technical. Some want a little hands-on, maybe if you're more of an antiquated, older uh, industry that is kind of accustomed to that. So I think that it varies. 
And it all takes me back to the kind of like what I would say is a journey optimization is like, I think what this is really telling us is we need to be highly focused on the customer journey and be mm-hmm. looking at it more consistently than, hey, we created it, great, move on. And I, I even think that most people today don't really think about it as a customer journey outside of the marketing lens. And they kind of just think, here are the things we do, and it just creates this journey. And then they're trying mm-hmm. to you know plug holes. So. I believe that, that this ultimately comes down to we need to look at the journey and measure it consistently to understand what our area needs, wants, so we can provide it for them. And if that is more hands off to allow them to experience the value that we know we provide through our, our product, so be it. I'm happy that that, that would occur. And look, we, we've got to go to the people. What do they need? What do they want? And what makes the buying experience more enjoyable, less uh, painful? Uh, because, you know, if you know you're about to get an SDR call and you're like, I just can't deal with that today, you're not moving forward. And it might have been the right product for me, for you, but you've kind of set up a wall that won't allow anybody to find that out. Yep. Okay. But to be specific, okay, guys, like we're, here's what I like about there. So you should have the ability for today's anonymous buyer to test and play with your product without you talking to them. Yes, and you should be building a product that allows that to happen. That is key. There's plenty, but like that's not happening all the time. Number two is uh, you should only have landing pages, in my opinion, for talk to sales or entree into the product. You can't, you gotta just give content away. I just met with a, someone the other day. They're like, we have this great e- uh, ebook. It's like, great, have sales email it to everyone that they know. Just give it to them. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you agree with that, Matt? Y- yes. Uh, there's still some gated content on our website, so don't go check the receipts. But like, I believe oh, in ungating content. I believe in it, right? I mean, and, and like, uh, I, I, think, I think it's – if you're running an email campaign that's driving somebody to something and then you're forcing them to fill out a form, like, what a mistake? What are you doing? Uh, I think it's trickier on ads, right? Because you do spend a lot of money to acquire people and you're driving them to something. And like to say, hey, I don't know who you are, but I understand that you want this, uh, that you're interested in, in what I'm selling here and you're not collecting that information. Like that's, that's tricky. That's really tricky. Judd, landing page, uh, kill the landing page? I, I don't believe in gating content either. I get every so often you have your one pillar piece that is the most valuable component, maybe. Um, but I just think these days, one, it's too easy to go find it somewhere else. Somebody's putting it up out there anyway. So it's not like you're really getting the data and most people understand that and realize it now. Um, and secondarily, trust the people. If they're interested, let them grow interest. Don't force them to take an action before there's real interest. So I, I, I agree. You ungate. Um, I don't mind landing pages that are more informational. So just from on the specific specificity of landing pages, but not to convert more. Hey, first off, if they land on a landing page and it's educational, guess what? We understand intent data. Like I kind of know who's there anyway. I don't need you to fill it out. I just want to, Hey, if this was valuable to you, great. And if it wasn't, we're going to find out real fast because when I follow up with anything or find a way to engage with you, you're not going to be interested. So as far as as landing pages, for the most part, yes, I agree. Don't gate anything. Um, 
But I do think there are good uses for landing pages just for understanding of the audience and education. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So I meant form fill. So you're in agreement with that. You're saying, yeah, yeah, you're going to have landing pages. All right. All right. Cool. And then um, the third one, though, that he mentioned that I'm, I'm still not sure we know how to play, which is community. Right. So, for example, some dude went on a post of ours with video and was with the Andy Raskin. And here's what he wrote. Uh, well, I don't actually shoot. I, I had it up on my screen. I can't find it. I'll give you a synopsis. He said, is my company, he lists his company, a movement or a category? It doesn't matter. I would love to be on your show and everyone should go check out my thing. And it's like, he missed the community message. <laughs> is the key to the community that we have people who are contributing into those communities? Or is the key that we're advertising? Like, what? what is... Because he has community on here. I've heard it a million times before. You, you know, despite what people think, you can't. Starting your own community that gets third-party people in is so hard, right? So, like, so you're going into third-party third, third party communities and, like, what are you doing in there? Here's what I can say. Communities are really challenging. Some people want to talk about this stuff. Other people don't. Right, like they just don't, and I've uh, I've been a part of communities that just over time they just run out of juice. Right, that's you know people are busy or the topics aren't interesting, and I've seen companies throw tons of money at community and not have it work. I I think you know we talked about this previously. Um, I think standing up community outside of your brand can be very valuable in places where people like to communicate, like Reddit. Um, if there's not a community for the category that you that you occupy, go create one. Go create one. Like, that's the easiest thing in the world to do. Like, just go create one. Like, people will find it in a place where they're looking for community. But I don't think people always go to brand and say, hey, I want community. Now the thing is, is like Notion, incredible community motion, incredible, like setting a new precedent. And it got everybody so incredibly excited about community, but because the way that product works, it really did require community and it requires like people sharing the way they use Notion. And so that is, that is very different. That is very different. And for them, they did an incredible job of creating a community, fostering a community, and then really benefiting from that community. But I'm not sure it's for everyone. Yeah, I got two things for you guys, because I got Judd has a community, so we got to ask him. But one is, I, we had Lauren Vargas um, on the show, and I asked her about LinkedIn, and she said, well, it's not community. Uh, I will use my word for it, it's a peacocking exercise, right? You're out mm. there show yourself out there and the responses you get it's not there's no engagement right you you get you know except for that guy who came on and lobbied for his company so he could be on our show and most people say uh preach this is gold you know like these things it's like a yeah that, that one that one's good okay and then the second one though that i'm wondering and then Odella, i got because judd has a community so he's been watching this I think one of the things that you have from Notion that you can take from that that is they have an army of customers that are willing to go out into the communities and regular world and 
talk about you as a solution to their, you know, problems or whatever, or with ideas. Um, and maybe that's part of it, but like, I don't, I think we're still trying to figure this thing out. I don't know, Jed, have you seen, uh, what have you seen in your community on that? I, I want us to be able to solve for this. At some yeah. Point. I, I think the communities are tough. There's no question. Um, if you go into the, in with the idea that a community is going to drive direct sales, it, you're probably going to fail. Um, the other part is when you tie a community to a product, it has to be the right product. Notion works. I would say something like a Canva could work, right? You've got super users and you share information and now you've created an army of basically brand ambassadors are going to go around and say, this is the best thing you need to be on it. And it did. If you go in and you're an enterprise software solution, right? Maybe you could use a user community. Sure. But if you're trying to do it more as a, hey, we're solving a problem together, and then you throw salespeople into this community, you're going to kill your community. Sure. Um, community is just what it says. It is a community, and it needs to be approached in that way that we are together solving problems, being apart, helping each other, growing together, not we are here to sell. Okay, um, but that's a that's an owned community. I'm talking about, like, for example, your community that yep. you own, a third-party community. Would you have that same answer there? <clears throat> I think the reason the community worked was it was third party. It was not directly tied to a business. We didn't say powered by. There was no, we do this. Rarely did we ever even talk about anything other than here's where we work or what we do or anecdotes from what we had done. That allowed people to feel safe. Because I remember when they came in and I started with Sangram uh, Vajra, who started Terminus. They're like, oh, do I have to have Terminus? We're like, absolutely not. We don't care what you have. You got demand base. You've got six cents. We don't care. We're here to be marketers together and to solve problems together. That unified the, the community. And I would say third parties have the innate ability to do that. Right. right? But they what I do, if I'm Marketo and you have a community with a thousand marketers in there, what do I do? Honestly, as a company, it's hard. Some, some of these third parties will allow sponsorships or events or things like that just for visibility, but not trackability. So in other words, you know, a lot of the companies go, you have to share leads. And for us, we just said, no, you don't want to be a part of this. Don't. We're not sharing leads. If you want to build a relationship and start with somebody, fine. That worked for us. Um, if Marketo said, we want to get in there, instead of approaching it potentially as the organization, say, who in our, our area might want to be a part of this? And how do we create internal brand ambassadors that go in there and they're just a part of it? How do we, like, hey, we're going to pay for you all to be a part of this community, no strings attached. Well, guess what? What that means is all of these Marketo people who love their, their work, love where they're working, they're, they're on a rocket ship, everything's going well. They're in there talking about these amazing experiences and they're building credibility and awareness in a way that Marketo can on its own. So if I am a larger org trying to take advantage of a third-party community, I want to empower my people in that community to be ambassadors for us. Not sell, just be ambassadors. Good human beings who are smart and good at what they do, who get to bring our brand with them. That answer I would say you? if... Yeah, I mean, uh, those were all great answers. I love that stuff, Judd. I mean, nailed it. But I think if I could give somebody tactical advice on... <laughs> Preach! If I could give somebody tactical advice if, who's thinking about starting a community right now, um, as a, if you're a, a software company and, and you want a community, I'd, I'd be like, 
create an uh, create a real life one create our in real life one get some like community advocates and like spend some money have people go to a bar happy hour like coffee shop something like that i think those communities are they're harder they're they're hard to build they're hard to get off the ground but like those are the relationships that are real they last um you know just because you brought up marketo like the marketo user groups that we did which were in person they crushed it for us they were awesome we did have an online community and like it was good it worked well but i think if if we thought about where do we get the most bang for our buck in terms of spreading the marketo kind of way of thinking about doing marketing automation or building programs lead scoring whatever we got it from the marketo user groups but that's owned that's yeah owned. yeah yeah that's owned that's owned you would, would you agree with jed though that like you would create your i mean you would create i forget the ambassador right like people that could go into reddit where your people are talking about you know something related to your business that's the key to playing in the communities i don't know that you have to i don't know that you have yeah. to i think if you want i, I mean I, I think that that is I, I don't i don't know that anybody would start a community thinking that way they'd be like hey let's see if we can just make this work i think that's a tactic to help drive engagement and i mean you think about it from everything whether it's a webinar whether it's a podcast like you want to have great guests and great people who have good ideas on things. And so you're sort of bringing that element there for discussion. Uh, I mean, the AMAs that happen on Reddit across multiple different communities are some of the most highly engaged pieces of content or pieces of events in community uh, that, that happen on, on Reddit. Uh, so, um, so I, I mean, sure. I don't know that it has to be ongoing. I don't know that it has to be all the time. And I don't know that like we all have the, the perfect answer for this just yet. I think, you know, the worst answer in all these situations is it just depends. The thing that I'll tell you is like the communities that I'm a part of with real people where we go out to dinner and we shake hands and we share stories are ones that are significantly more valuable to me than any of the communities that exist on Slack. So just think about that. What, one thing that I want to, I, I do want to point out, and I know well, we can end it here though. Marketo did something really interesting. They had a long, it was a long tail play. They didn't build a community saying we need direct sales. They built a community of users and then built champions. The mm-hmm. champions, everywhere they went, they were showing off their, I'm a Marketo, you know, superstar. Like I, I am one of the few, which brought validity to Marketo as a brand and open the door for more sales. I guarantee you, if your ops person was saying, we have to get Marketo, I'm I'm a super user, that's what we use, they're getting it. So yeah. there are ways to think through the entirety. And what I think Marketo really did well is seeing the end, what they were really looking for was to grow that army of super users that loved it and loved the what it made them in their minds by being these elite, right? And that helped to spread the word. So there are ways to do owned, but it is very difficult. Yeah, yeah. So you hit the nail on the head there. Craig, you, you take that one? You got the look. Ah. So guys. I, I, I was looking at time. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. I don't, I, Those I don't glasses think make it interesting. I, I can't tell if you're, you know, the Coke bottles. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I just think like, uh, 
we'll we'll have to continue to build coherence here as everyone talks about community i think we were mixing and matching uh owned versus not owned and in, in sort of how we're thinking about it uh and i do but i will say that um if i do agree with matt i'm not sure so i think we're talking about community but i'm not i don't know that like if someone came to me with a list of priorities i'm not sure it's going to be in the top 10 yet yeah because you don't yeah, I don't know if I disagree with you at all. I think you're accurate. And and right now, the amount of effort and money and work that it would take to build one that could have sustainable uh, results. So, yeah. guys, as always, we have fun conversations and good stuff. Guys, send us what else you want us to talk about. Send us posts, comments, questions. We're all about talking about it, and we're always happy to uh, to have you guys on. Obviously, we're going to have an amazing guest. You always know that, and uh, you get to hear Craig uh, – come up with some amazing questions. So with that, stick around for that. Join us again next week. And uh, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you. More UPS. UPS. FedEx. Thanks for tuning in to GTM Unfiltered. To hear our innovative insights and strategies, visit gtmunfiltered.com. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time.